Okay, I, I would give background on what I'm preaching on today, but it would take the whole meeting. Uh, but I've been preaching basically on the 23rd Psalm, which is pretty much familiar to most people. And there are tremendous promises, you know, the Lord is my shepherd and all the wonderful things God will do for you. And the context of it is so important in that absolutely none of the wonderful things in that psalm were going on when David wrote that psalm. The exact opposite was actually happening, which is a major, uh, major, that's a very important concept to understand. Sometimes you make your way through difficult situations by proclaiming promises God's promises, which are exactly opposite of, of your circumstance. And last week I spoke on um, verse 5, which is, uh, you prepare a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. And uh, my cup runs over is a very poor translation of, of the language. It should read... Um, And my inebriating chalice, how excellent it is. That's the Latin. Or your intoxicating cup, how excellent it is. Or your cup is making me drunk like the finest wine. And there's a concept in the, in the Old Testament that's actually demonstrated again in the New Testament about the spiritual intoxication, which is really just God releasing such high-level hope and encouragement into your experience that it's, it's just simply indescribable and amazing. I think too little has been said about the, the ability and the desire God has to transform people internally. Um, and I get, I get pretty excited about that kind of God, you know. Uh, I think it's important to have a God who's interested in, in our emotions and how we feel. And I've heard a lot of people say, I haven't heard a lot of people say, but I've had enough, heard enough people say, um, it's sort of a hard-nosed Christian position where God never promised to make us happy, and that's really stupid. I mean, he, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, and his description of that kingdom was a kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, in the Holy Spirit. And so the manifestation of the kingdom should have all of those characteristics, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, it did, it did, it, he did, because the Holy Spirit's not an it, but we understand him so little sometimes we treat him like an it so we apologize for that but he's lord but the holy spirit when he came did something in the lives of the apostles that three years with jesus himself could not do and that's just a fact of the of the bible even after the resurrection even after seeing jesus miracles even after seeing his crucifixion, even after being taught by him and, and having, his, having him appear after his resurrection, they were still, but after the ascension, 
the apostles were still locking their doors for fear of their adversaries in Jerusalem until after the Holy Spirit came. And the description that um, those who mocked what they saw happening in that encounter in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came accused the apostles of being drunk. But however that worked and whatever it looked like, the end result was the things they had heard and the things they had learned became energized in a, in a particular way when the Holy Spirit filled them in, in that Acts chapter 2 way. And one of the basic descriptions that I've seen over the years of it is of like unbridled joy. So, what I want to do today is I'm going to talk about Psalm 126. And um, it's really in this sort of general uh, conversation I'm having with myself that you're listening to about the possibility of being filled with joy. And um, the possibility of sudden, supernatural, divine reversals. How many of you would like one of those? Unexpected. Sudden breakthrough, turnarounds, reversals. And we're going to read Psalm 126 in a minute, but I want to introduce it by describing just generally what it says or what it tells us. First of all, it tells us that God sets captives people free. It tells us that God does things that are so remarkable that people have trouble believing that it's actually happened and that they begin to believe it's too good to be true. They begin to ask themselves, are we really just dreaming or did this really happen? Has something so wonderful ever happened to you that the way it struck you was, this can't possibly be true? Well, see, until you see the gospel in its fullness, even though you're a believer, honestly, when you see the gospel in its fullness, that should be your reaction. This is too good to be true. But when you get touched by the power of the Holy Spirit, he releases in you that feeling just as well. So sometimes, well, I'll get into that later. But you ask yourself, am I just dreaming or is this really happening? God will actually fill your mouth with laughter and your tongues with shouts of joy by what he does. When what he does registers... And when you feel the wonder of it, and when you see the benefit of it in your own life, your natural desire is that you want him to do that for other people. And then this is a very important part. In the last verse it says, you may sow in tears, but when you sow in tears you reap in joy and you bring a harvest with you. I think Charles Spurgeon said, tears are liquid prayers. How many of you have been brokenhearted enough to, pray, to weep over something? Yeah, raise your hand if you've been brokenhearted enough to actually shed tears. Okay, let's do this. Let's tell the Lord those tears were our liquid prayers. Those tears were our liquid prayers. 
And we have a promise here we're going to see out of Psalm 26. Those that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Bringing a harvest with them. So why don't you um, go ahead and put that, uh, put the psalm up there. And let's stand up and, and read this together. Why don't we do that? I sort of like doing that. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Let me make a correction. The text doesn't say our tongue was filled with singing. It literally says our tongue was filled with acclamations of joy. You may have never been in a meeting like that. I hope we have one someday. And our tongue was with singing. They, then they said among the nations... The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. So that's Psalm 126. You can, you can have a seat. Now, to, to fully appreciate the 23rd Psalm, you had to understand its context. Because if you would read that Psalm and look at David's life, I mentioned this earlier, you would go, well, David, you don't know if you're going to live or die. You don't know where your next meal is going to come from. You don't know who you can trust. And here he's saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow and death, I shall fear no evil for thou with me, for thou comfortest me. You prepare a table for me, the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And it was Absalom who was following him, trying to kill him. And so if you don't see that, that see, the importance of that psalm is that no matter what goes on in your life, God's good. And you don't consult your circumstance to make that determination. You consult your testimony or this testimony. Because if you just describe your misery, you don't have, or your difficulty, or your problems, the the description of your problems doesn't contain a solution. Sometimes you just have to simply rely on God. Sometimes you just have to simply hope against hope. You just need to believe what God says instead of what your situations dictate. That's the importance of Psalm 23. And eventually, can somebody say eventually? Eventually, David's life turned around. But it wasn't a long eventually. It was like within several weeks. Breakthrough came. He was restored to the throne. Now, when you look at, uh, when you're looking at Psalm 126, what is the historic context? Well, the historic context is that 
Jeremiah had prophesied, this is in Jeremiah 29.10, Thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. And so what happened was Israel's enemies had displaced them. They had been taken as slaves to a foreign land. And the prophet Jeremiah told them, you will be gone for 70 years. And he prophesied that around um, 609 B.C. Well, they came back around 539 B.C. See, B.C. goes backwards, you know. Now, the incredible thing was that 200 years before they went into slavery, another prophet named Isaiah prophesied this. I'm just going to jump into the middle of it. This is Isaiah 44, verse 26. Dot, dot, dot. Who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. Now, the only problem with Isaiah prophesying that Jerusalem would be inhabited was it was inhabited. This made no sense to the people that heard it when this first came out. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places. There were no waste places. They're in the midst of some of their greatest prosperity who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now, the temple was there. The foundation was there. What in the world was Isaiah prophesying about? Isaiah saw, maybe he didn't see any of this, maybe he just simply repeated what the Lord showed him. But Isaiah saw a day that took 200 years to happen. He saw a day when the temple would be ransacked, when it would need to be restored, that villages in Judah would no longer be inhabited, and that a man named Cyrus, who was called my shepherd, would be responsible for doing all of this. And so here's what happened. After about 130 years, the Babylonians took everyone captive in Jerusalem, took them back to Babylon, basically took them back to Iran, that's where it was. And they stayed there for 70 years until a king named Cyrus read about himself in the Old Testament by reading the words of a prophet who had lived 200 years before he was born. Who's amazed? I'm amazed. Is, am I making sense? Am I making this? So Cyrus reads his name in Isaiah chapter 44, and then he makes a decree. He says, 
Any Jew in my kingdom can go back to Israel and they can rebuild Zion. And I'll pay for it. And anybody that messes with you, messes with me. And so thousands of them went back. And when they went back, they sang this song. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we're glad. This was so phenomenal that even the nations declared that God had done it. This was such a supernatural reversal of fortune. An enslaved people group who had no possibility of deliverance. A captive people who according to Psalm 137 would say, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yes, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps on the willows in the midst of it for those who carried us away captive, ask of us a song. And those who plundered us requested us to be joyful, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. They had been gone 70 years. And on one day, Psalm 137 was what they said, How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And the next day, they had been delivered. They had been released. They had been uh, formerly enslaved, were now empowered and, and given wealth and direction and protection to go back to a homeland they hadn't seen for 70 years. And they said, this is too good to be true. Can this possibly be true? One of the things that's interesting is I was reading a commentator uh, early, early this morning. Um, and he, he wondered if Psalm 126 didn't have something to do with the ultimate salvation of the Jewish nation. Of them returning to the land. And so I thought, I wonder, I wonder when this guy wrote that. Do you know when he wrote it? 1760. In 1760, he applied Psalm 126 to an event that didn't happen until like 1945. See, we are so, oh gosh, what's the rest? We get so used to things, we don't respect the validity of them. You know, the Jews, and this is not about the Jews this morning, but it's about the deliverance of God this morning. Do you realize that the nation state of Israel is the only time, I believe I've understood the correct, only time in human history where a displaced people group have been given back their homeland. Only time in human history has it happened to any other tribe but these Jews. And so one of the things that strikes me is God's intention to deliver people. God's interest in these radical, supernatural, sudden, reversals that are so shocking all we can do is laugh and wonder if it's really true. That's what he wants to do. I believe he wants to do it in Queen City Church. I believe he wants to do it with you. How's he going to do it? I don't care how he's going to do it. I'm not in charge of how. I'm in charge of proclamation. I'm in charge of declaration. You're in charge of agreement. You're in charge of saying to yourself, 
This is too good to be true. Could God actually change my life to that degree? Could God actually change my circumstances to the degree that it would be so wonderful I would have trouble believing it's going to happen? Yes. 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 Well, Robin, aren't you giving people false hope? There's no such thing. You hope until it happens. How can it be false? And if you die and it never happened, you're in heaven and it happens on a level so much greater than you imagined. But meanwhile, you spent that whole hopeless life of yours having hope. That's really good right there. I don't... That's illogical. Nevertheless, I was getting on a roll. So Now... I went through and read comments all these guys have made down through the ages. You know, some of you have lost your dream. See, there's this idea um, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Now that can mean, is this possibly happening? Or let me tell you what I think it also means, and it may be even more profound. It means when God reveals himself to you, when you begin to absorb here, not not here, but when you begin to absorb here how much he really cares about you, when you begin to either see or hear or experience testimonies of these amazing reversals, it gives you your dream back. People lose their dreams because they no longer believe God wants to help them. And it's amazing, uh, uh, the power of testimony. When, when someone has a breakthrough, the whole idea of breakthrough in testimony is it's not a one-time deal, it's contagious. When one person gets a testimony, you can have faith from what they tell you to receive yours. When one person gets a healing, you can get yours. When one person gets a miracle, you can get yours. When Shelly gets a $100,000 check and pays off all her college expenses in one single day in time, you can believe for that too. Why not? She didn't have the money. She didn't have anybody to give her the money. And somebody just gave her the money. Is that right, Shelly? Just gave, and, and her sister blacks out, falls downstairs, beats herself silly, goes to the hospital, accrues like a $20,000 hospital bill, and somebody pays her hospital bill. Come on. Are you just preaching prosperity? I better be. Come on. I mean, who wants to be broke? How does all... I don't know how it happens. Has it happened to you? Well, I had a person give me a car. I wasn't even praying for a car. Isn't it awesome when God does wonderful things for you you're not even asking for? A guy came up to me and said, the Lord told me to buy you a car. I said, really? Yes. I said, that's, that's a great idea. So he took me down to the dealership and he said, what do you want? So I looked at the cheapest car and I said, nah, I'm not getting that. Now I looked at, uh, I got like a beautiful 
I don't remember what year it was. It was 1980, two-door Monte Carlo, Carolina blue, Landau roof, leather interior. And I was so broke. This is not an exaggeration. I was so broke, I didn't have money to put gas in it and drive it home. That's right. And I was so thankful. I had an old beat-up um, Nova. This thing was so beat up that when you push that button on the door handle, you don't know about those maybe, but they used to have buttons on door handles, and you had to push them to open the door. The button would fall down inside the door, and I have to go around and, and get in on the other side. And I was a traveling salesman, and I, had a, I would keep a coat hanger in the bumper of my car. Does anybody know what that coat hanger was for? It's for when I locked myself out of the car and my keys are in there, I could use that coat hanger to fish it through the, get in the car. That was the car I took with me to trade. And so I traded that car, and the dealer wanted to give me the money for the car. And I said, oh, no, no, that's not mine, that's his. He bought the car. And the guy says, oh, no, no, that's your money. The Lord didn't tell me to trade cars for you. The Lord told me to buy you a car. And then a guy gave me a motorcycle. My wife still hates that guy. No. <laughs> no, she prayed me out of that motorcycle. It took about 18 months. <laughs> Just gave me a motorcycle. I am capable of being blessed, ladies and gentlemen. As we should all be, really. But there are, then there are these sudden... And, and they don't even have to be like episodes where you get something... It can be the dawning in your heart of seeing the goodness of God. Now, sudden supernatural divine reversals imparting joy. I've got a number of comments here about how these people responded there in Psalm 126. We were so surprised and astonished with the report of such a favor that we could not believe our own eyes and ears, but thought it was just a dream or a delusion of our own fancies as is usual in matters of great joy. Another comment. The announcement of freedom seemed too joyful to be real, as if they would say, we could hardly believe our senses. We were delirious with delight. Who wants to believe for delirious with delight? The news was so unexpected that we doubted for a time the truth of it. We believed it was too good news to be true and thought ourselves in a dream or an illusion. Another commentator wrote, relative to we were like unto them that dream in Psalm 126. This must indeed have been an understatement. After two or three generations... Some 70 years of captivity in Babylon, they are suddenly on the way back to Jerusalem. Now listen to this. Just as God promised. Say that. Just as God promised. Suddenly, they're on their way back to Jerusalem. Just as. As God had promised. Do you know what the gospel is? 
It's a promise. How do we know God will forgive our sins? He promises. How do you know He'll heal us? He promises. How do you know He'll never leave us or forsake us? He promises. How is it your fortune can be reversed? He promises. How is it He'll take care of your children? He promises. How is it you get anything from God? You believe what He promises. And so Psalm 126 is not an isolated episode. It's an example of the heart of God. It's the example of the nature of God to turn things around for people who believe His promises. But God is so wonderful, He will, he will do this even when you don't believe. There are times where He'll just do stuff. And you wonder. You didn't even expect it. You weren't believing for any of this. Because he says in Psalm 23, He leads us in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. What does that mean? He leads us in a good way because He is a good person. For His namesake. What does that mean? His reputation is at stake. Is He good? Or is He not? You vote. You've got to vote. Just as He promised. I really don't like that. Not only on their way back home, but the all-powerful Medo-Persian monarch Cyrus is financing their return. This would be like Iran building the temple in Jerusalem for the Jews. It would, no, it wouldn't really be like that. It was that. That doesn't even need to be an example of what might happen. That's literally what did happen. The king of Iran, of Persia, Cyrus sponsored the return of the Jews to Jerusalem. Iran ought to be mad at Cyrus. That's who they really ought to be mad at right now. Not these Jews. They didn't have anywhere to go back to their great, 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 great grandfather sent them over there. That's very good. Somebody ought to be tweeting that right there now. That's, there's some insight somewhere. No wonder they laughed and sang for joy. Never before in the whole history of the human race had there ever been anything like this. And on and on and on. Now we have examples of great joy and these reversals all throughout the, the Bible. One of them is in Genesis 45. Jacob thought Joseph had been dead for 22 years. What would that feel like? For your favorite, and I've just put it this way because this is the way the Bible puts it, for your favorite child to have lost your favorite child. And you know that was a dysfunctional family because the rest of those brothers are the ones that did him in. And then you're all living there together with this elephant in the room nobody would talk about, as they say. But for 22 years, Jacob was heartbroken. 22 years. The patriarch lived with that loss. Then you know the story, there were the seven years of plenty, the seven years, then, then behind it were going to be the seven years of famine. 
Joseph was not dead. He was alive. See, this is the wonder of it. This is such a picture of Jesus, the one that they thought was dead. And Christians are living with this every day, practically speaking. The one that they think is really dead from any effective manifestation standpoint is not only alive, he's in charge. See, the story of Joseph is such a picture of Jesus, his relationship with the unbelieving church, or a church that's under circumstances, that it's remarkable. There's the great patriarch who contained all of God's promises, living in poverty through this drought. He sends his sons to Egypt. In Egypt, they barter for food. It turns out the person in charge of the food is the brother they sold into slavery 22 years earlier who has had such a wonderful work of mercy and grace in his heart that he decides to take care of the entire family and protect them from this terrible plague. But at this point in the story, Jacob's sons know Joseph is alive, but Jacob doesn't know he's alive. So Jacob sends back these wagons full of blessing, full of all that Egypt has to offer. And it says, um, when they came to the land of Canaan to Jacob the father, they told him saying, Joseph is still alive and he's governor over all the land of Egypt. How could Jacob possibly believe that? What do you mean he's alive? He's been dead for almost a quarter. What do you, a lot, in charge, What? And the Bible says, And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. What does that mean? He had a heart attack or he fainted, but it was not good. But the good news so startled him, his whole system just shut down. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said, but when they heard the words of Jesus, you could say, when they heard all the words which Joseph had said, and when they saw the wagons, the plenty, the benefit which Joseph had sent to carry them, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. And see, this is simply a picture of what Jesus has done in the gospel, and the church is believing and so unempowered in our day right now. They have not really seen that the one that everyone is acting like is dead is not only alive, he's in charge, and he has the capacity and the ability to give deliverance from your circumstance. You deserve what you're getting and it's not good. And he says, I'll reverse it. I'll change it. I'll deliver you. And that's the gospel. Then there was Peter in jail. How many of you remember the story in Acts 12? Jesus' three closest friends were who? Peter, James, and John. Well, at one point, to please people, Herod had killed John's brother James. He's killed him, beheaded him. And then, this was after the resurrection, this was after Pentecost, the church had grown, they became a huge threat. All that was going on. That's why Herod took hold of James and killed him. So then he finds Peter and he puts Peter in prison. And he has this amazing encounter. It says, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and the angel smote Peter on the side. Whoever thought an angel would hit you? 
angels need to hit us. We're asleep at the wheel. How many of you know what it feels like to be asleep at the wheel? I know what it feels like to be asleep at the wheel. I woke up one night on I-77 driving. My wife was in the car behind me. I'd fallen asleep. I was so tired. We'd both gone to the mountains. She had come after I came. I was literally asleep at the wheel. That's dangerous. And I wasn't dozing off. I was asleep because I remember waking up and thinking, I'm driving. <laughs> and I was so afraid. I was so afraid that when I did go to bed last night, each time I almost drifted off to sleep, I felt like the devil said, now you're driving. And I would, it was crazy. But like asleep at the wheel. It's like we go to church. I've been in church all my life, but there are times where I just need to shaken. I need to be awakened. I need to be alerted. I need to see reality. And so Peter, I'm sorry, yes, Peter was in prison. He's asleep. They have 16 guards. Acts chapter 12. An angel hits him and picks him up and says, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off. Then the angel says, Gird yourself, tie on your sandals. So he puts on his sandals. Then he said, Put on your garment and follow me. So Peter follows this angel. It says he went out, followed him, and listen to this. Peter did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. That's amazing. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gates that led to the city. Guess what they did? They opened of it their own accord. They just swung open. His chains fall off. The gate opens. The guards don't see him. Verse 11, And when Peter had come to himself, let's say that, when we come to ourselves, <laughs> never mind, that didn't work. But there's a point in there. When Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. When you come to who you really are, do you know what you realize? You realize how much stupid stuff you've been believing and how much you've been under that has intimidated and threatened you that was not even worthy of your time because you are a child of royalty. You have been invested with the strength and power of Jesus. God Himself has taken residence inside of you. He's there whether you know it or not. You might need to be shaken. You might need to be smitten. You might need to be alerted. You might need to be awakened. But inside of you, by the power of God, is everything you need. It's just got to be energized. It's just got to be quickened. It's just got to be alerted. That's what faith is. Now, here's the great thing. So Peter doesn't know where to go, so he goes to, uh, I think, John Mark's house. Right, John Mark in the Bible. Yeah, John, whose surname was Mark. Now, they were there praying, Lord, deliver Peter from jail. So Peter shows up at the door, and he knocks, and a girl named Rhoda came to the door, recognized Peter's voice, but because of her gladness, she didn't open the gate, 
But she ran in and said, Peter's at the gate. And they said, you're crazy. He's in prison. Well, they were praying for his release. Because you can't tell me faith gets all this stuff done. They're not believing God. Because when the answer comes, they don't recognize it. And when the answer comes, Rhoda sees it. She's so shocked, she doesn't know what to do. So finally, they understand it really is Peter. But they say, well, it's his angel. What does that mean? Well, there was some belief, and it may be true, that people have angels, and the angels resemble the people whose angels they are. I don't know how she figured that out. But here's what happened. God delivered Peter. Who was believing? I don't know. How many of you want deliverance like that? Supernatural, sudden. Lord, wake us up. The resurrected Jesus. When Jesus appeared to the disciples, particularly some of the ladies, the ladies seemed to be much more sensitive or available to, to Jesus. They came and told the apostles that Jesus was alive, and the apostles said their words seemed to them like idle tales. Wild talk of those in a delirium or hysteria. That's the Weiss translation. Nonsense. See, the gospel is the power of God. Jesus wants, to, I believe we're going to come into a whole brand new season of remarkable reversals, supernatural turnarounds, inexplicably good benefits from the Lord. People who've given up on God, God hasn't given up on. People we've given up, God hasn't given up on. I really like that. You know, the Bible actually says someone who's born again is different than what they used to be. We need to see more of that. These conversions that are so eye-popping, it's hard to believe. These miracles that are so extraordinary, it's hard to believe. Are we dreaming? Is this real? Let's do this. Let's pray for a brand new season like that. You know, we're in transition and um, between where we are and where we're going to be. And uh, this hasn't been terribly hard on me personally. For me, it's been having to uh, connect, having to do things I'm not used to doing about the building and you know, thank God for Mark Brittner. He's been such a tremendous help. But um, anytime we go through changes, there can be that unsettled feeling. But I'm going to tell you something. You don't have something new that's born without a transition. That's that period where the baby comes. And, and there's confusion and there's disorientation. But I believe we're in, a, we're in a transition because I think something new is being born. I'm praying for painless transition. Rick Joyner says his, his phrase is not no pain, no gain. His is no pain, no pain. <laughs> Let's say that together. No pain, no pain. <laughs> But how many of you want something new to come? How many of you are tired of something old?
Lord, we pray. Lord, Psalm 126. Deliverance of a whole nation on one, one single day in time. Lord, on a single day in time, Jacob discovers what he could have been enjoying for 22 years, that his son was not dead, but he was alive. Yet there was that day when everything changed. Lord, when the ladies that loved Jesus talked to him after his resurrection, everything changed for them and for everyone else that was associated. Lord, when Peter was in prison, you sent that angel, and that angel did whatever was necessary to get Peter out of that jail because of his destiny and his purpose. And that when he came to himself, he realized the truth of that supernatural episode. Lord, we want to come to ourselves. Lord, we want to come to our true self in you. The self that sees you accurately, interprets life in light of a kingdom that has no end, that has unlimited resources, that's a happy kingdom, not a mean-spirited religious kingdom, but a kingdom whose um, expression is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Lord, bring reversals to everyone in here. Lord, we, we, break, we break the power of the darkness whereby we agree with the lie and not with the truth, whereby we settle for the failure and not the ability to access the victory and the success. So we ask for all that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is, I would pronounce his name, but I can't, so we call him Z. So I grew up in Czech Republic, and in 1989, the situation was like, it was dark. No hope. We just, people believe that the communism is forever. So there was a lot of desperation. So if you have no hope, so people are drinking, uh, doing all the stuff like this because of no hope, no, it doesn't matter actually. So you do whatever is look like pleasant or something like that. And, and we did not deserve anything because majority of nation was like this. There were several Christians, like less than 1%, uh, praying, Almost nobody believed it can be changed. And in November 89, something happened. Just people were in the streets and like spirit came to them and they were happy. They were like, like drunk, but they, they did not drink. That spirit of joy came up. And around this square, Wenceslau Square in the middle of Prague, and two blocks away were tanks and police, and they wanted to, to, to stop it. But they, they, after a while, after months of these protests, they just gave up. So we've got this velvet revolution, no shot at all. 
no blood. So it was gift. We did not deserve it at all because there were not many people believing. It was just gift. So if somebody is saying that Lord <laughs> is not doing this for nations, he does. He did it for us and we definitely, it was not our fault. <laughs> <laughs> It was just a gift, so, so it's about mercy, it's about who he is, not who we are. So I, when I hear, hear that we did not deserve it as a nation, as a, because now I'm American, I've got citizenship, so, and we don't, but his name is bigger, it's about for his name's sake, so it's not about us, because he loves us, so it's about him. so wonderful we have uh, ministry teams this morning we'd love to pray for you if you have any needs um, we'll be glad to see you right over here